Hey, good morning. Go ahead and grab a seat. Make yourself comfortable. Thank you, Charlie. Appreciate that. It's good to see you this morning. If you're a guest and I've not met you yet, my name is Luke, one of the pastors here at Legacy. Excited to teach today. Before we jump in, there's a quick announcement, and that is that we are quickly going to be starting our ladies' Bible study back up. Uh, most of you probably already know this. If, if you are on our email list, you've likely gotten an email on this already. But if not, we're going to put our text number up on the screen, which has kind of become our, you know, our Swiss Army knife of communication right now, 865-484-6086. If you are interested in the ladies' Bible study and you are a lady, all right, <laughs> and you want to be a part of that, go ahead and text that if you've not already gotten some communication on this, and we will get you involved and get you the Zoom link. It will be on Zoom as it starts off. Janet Hamilton is going to lead it. She's going to do it. She's going to crush it. She's going to do a great job. So if this is something that you're interested in, that would be a good way to get involved. We can get you the Zoom link off of that. That's going to be starting up here pretty quick. It'll be on Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Wednesdays at 11. And so if you're watching online and you're not part of Knoxville, you're not part of Legacy, you're also invited into something like that if that's what you want to do. I know we have people watching that don't even live in Knoxville. So, um, But with that out of the way, I'd love for you to get your Bible or use your app and go to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, we're going to keep clicking through our series, Home But Not Home, as we look at the exile's life as we are shaped after Christ who came before us today. Tough word <clears throat> as we talk about submitting. Submitting, not our favorite thing to talk about, and that's because it's hard. <laughs> Submitting's hard when we are submitting under somebody that we do not agree with, right? But if we agreed with them, then it would just be called agreement. If you're having to submit, it means that you automatically don't agree with the person or the group or whoever it is that you are subjecting yourself or coming underneath. And this was a serious issue for the early church. It's a, it's a serious issue for us today, submission is. But we know that this was a difficult issue for the early church because Peter is spending so much time talking about it. You've probably picked that up. Two weeks ago, he talked about how you and I, how we submit with, to each other. We're, as we're, we're living stones who are fit together in the same spiritual house. But listen, we don't want to submit to each other, Right? I mean, you look across the room and you're thinking, but that person's a moron. I don't even agree with them half the time. I'm supposed to submit to them? What does that even look like? Last time, we looked at how we submit to every human institution, the Caesars and the governors of the land, which was very difficult because we didn't always vote for all of the people that are in charge of whatever municipality or city or state or nation. Next week and the week after, we're going to look at how we submit to our spouse. That's not always easy. Today we're going to look at submitting to those who are unjust towards us. That's really hard. You see, we know that this was an issue that the early church went through because Peter has it in his letter. I want you to remember whenever you read a letter from Paul or from Peter, in nerd words, that's called an epistle, but it's just a letter. It's like you're listening to a phone call, but you're only catching one side of it. Have you ever had someone on the phone, they're walking around the room, and you can kind of intuit what the other party is saying based on the person that's right in front of you and what they're saying. That's what's happening in these letters. There were people that were bringing complaints or questions or issues to Peter or to Paul, and these letters are their answers or their encouragements or their challenges. So at some point, someone or multiple people, very likely, 
said, hey, I've got people in my life that are ruining me. They're unjust towards me. I mean, I can't, I can't get away from them. I feel trapped. And I just don't feel any justice is ever going to happen for me. And I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with all of this. Listen, many of us in here, we're suffering due to injustice right now. I mean, think about it. Scan the landscape of your life right now. Are people being unjust to you, a person, a group? Do you feel like there's unjust treatment? Let me ask you, how are you navigating that? Do you dream of your vindication? Do you dream and imagine what it looks like when that person goes down, when that group figures out that they were the ones that were wrong the whole time? Do you think about your revenge Do you ponder vengeance? Or maybe you don't, but someone you're doing life tightly with, they're struggling with this. And you can smell it, right? You can see it a mile away when someone's really struggling with this acidic, bitter, hoarding, this brooding, wanting someone to just fall and collapse so that they feel better. It's pretty obvious. Peter's going to speak right to it. Let's look at our text. We're only going to read seven verses today. We're going to be in verse 18 through 25. So this is the word of the Lord for us, and you are going to see Christ incredibly clear today. As Peter says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled, He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Okay, listen, off the bat, Right off the bat, the very first word, if you have an NIV in front of you, is the word slave. That very first word is translated to slave. Now, if you're in a different version, it said servant, just like I read it. I'm reading out of the ESV. You need to know when it says slave, that's not the best translation for that word. It's just not accurate. But I'll I'll be honest, servant isn't the best translation either. We don't really have a word. This is just the best we can do with our limited vocabulary, the word servant. The Greek actually points to a word in between the two, which we don't have a word readily available to us, right? And this is what happens when you take a big, vast, ancient, diverse, and textured language and try to crunch it and squish it into our very limited vocabulary today, right? And it's not just the Mediterranean to here. There are some Inuit populations that have 21, 22 words for snow because that is their reality there. We have one word. Guess what it is? It's snow. We call it snow. If it's white, it's snow. It's, it's, it's something like that, right? In Peter's world, this is what would happen. In Peter's world, you could be forced into labor, forced, trapped into labor, because maybe your people were defeated in battle, 
and you were captured or you got into heavy, heavy debt and couldn't pay it off. Or maybe you were born into a family that was in deep service like this. But slave doesn't help us very much. Because when we say the word slave, we immediately imagine our 19th century American experience of slavery. And that's not what's going on right here. And this is why a lot of people struggle with the Bible, because they view it as a piece of literature that reinforces slavery. When in fact, it's actually the Bible that helped bring slavery down to ashes. You see, in the ancient world, you wouldn't be pressed into service because of skin color. That didn't have anything to do with it. That's where it's very different from our American slavery experience. This forced servant, it it wasn't ethnically done. It was economic in its mindset. It wasn't for your ethnicity. It was for economics. These servants could usually also purchase their freedom if they had enough money to do so. In fact, a lot of times they made more money than your average free citizen. If you do just a, a cursory research into who was tutoring and who was teaching back, then it would be people that would be in this servant class. Household managers, brokers, artisans, musicians, teachers, professors, they would be in this class. But what could they do if their master was a turd? If their master wasn't that gentle, what do they do? I mean, they're trapped. They're not employees. They can't form a union. They can't just quit. They're stuck. That's why we need a word that is stronger than servant, but not as strong as what we think whenever we hear the word slave. And and if that's true, and we have a hard time finding a word for this, then how are you and I supposed to connect to this passage? Right? Because we're not in this class. Whenever scripture puts a text before you with no straight line between then and today, it's always good to dig out the deeper principle. That's the best thing for us to do. That's the most responsible thing we can do. And today we have plenty to dig out. This is the main idea of this passage. When suffering unjustly, do so conscious of God's plan, entrusting that suffering to God. Let me say it differently. Whenever you suffer unjustly, do so mindful of what God is doing, where he's taking you, his plan, and entrust justice to him. Listen, I know I say this a lot of weeks. I'm really struggling with this passage. I struggle with the idea of injustice anyway. I'm going to watch the same game a lot of you guys are going to watch today, right? I'm Team Brady, just to get that out in the open. Listen, I'll be fine. I could get over it if he doesn't throw the ball well. I could be fine if there's there's coaching errors. But if an official throws a flag and it hurts the Bucs and it's the wrong call, it will ruin the game for me, even if the Bucs win. It will ruin it, just the idea of injustice. I hate it. But even more so, I struggle with this passage, and I didn't want to preach it today because I don't want to face the fact that I don't want to trust God with my personal injustices. I still want vengeance. I want to balance the scales. I want vindication. I want retribution. I don't want to trust those things to God. I mean, when suffering a personal injustice, trusting the Lord, it doesn't sound very fast, does it? It doesn't sound very satisfying either. You see, when I suffer injustice, I'm not always mindful of God. I'm looking out for my rights. So what Peter does is he unpacks this passage and he speaks to how you and I react when injustice finds us, and it does. How do we react? I mean, the most obvious thing, number one, is that we seek revenge and vindication. 
That's the most obvious thing, right? You stick it to me, I'm going to stick it to you right back. It's petty, right? But it feels good. I mean, and we can all be petty. I grew up with a brother, and I learned, and he learned how to be patient with our retribution. A day might go by, a week might go by, a month or two, someone was getting revenge though, right? This is also where road rage fits in, just in case you wanted to know. I was laughing with Paula this morning. She wasn't laughing as much as I was. But back whenever I was 23 and we were freshly minted as a couple, we were barely married. We didn't even have any kids. We're just cruising down the highway in Texas and in my Ford Escort, and this guy cuts me off. And I'm like, what? There's, you had no reason to even get in that lane. Like, there's, you know how it is. And so I pass him on the right because that's super legal. And then I cut him off because I just had, I wanted him to feel what I felt when he cut me off. I wanted to, and you know how that ends. He honks his horn, honk my horn, turns into sign language back and forth. <laughs> Some words, I'm rolled down my window and I did this because that's what my Ford Escort did. Rolled down my window and I'm screaming at him, telling him to pull over, pull over. But I'm screaming at the same time I'm doing the calculus in my head. I'm trying to figure out how much this guy weighs. Is he bigger than me? Does he outweigh me? Can I take this guy? But I want him to pull over. And Paula the whole time is like, you are so stupid. She wasn't even yelling at me. She was so embarrassed to be in the car with me, right? It's road rage. But listen, we don't even need cars to road rage on each other, do we? We don't. That's where this fits. Seeking revenge. You throw a jab. I'll throw a jab. This is how Peter speaks to this. He says, for this is a gracious thing, gracious, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Peter says this type of suffering is an act of grace to the oppressor. And we know, because we say it all the time here, grace is you getting something you don't deserve. It's God's favor on you despite you. That's what grace is. But let's face it, wicked people, they don't deserve your grace, do they? They deserve a fist, they deserve words, they deserve vengeance, you deserve vindication. This is true. This is true. They deserve the worst that you can give. And that would make you feel right, wouldn't it? Doesn't it just make us feel right? You see, injustice is like this this unbalanced equation that is just begging to be balanced. That's why we feel so unsettled whenever we don't have our vindication. Friends, this is where exiles in the shape of Christ look so radically different than the world because the gospel story is a story of grace. It's a story of grace where I got what I did not deserve. And listen, when people are unjust towards us and we're trapped and when we refuse to return fire, that's otherworldly. But so is our gospel. It's not really a normal story, is it? It's an otherworldly story. There's nothing routine about grace. There's nothing normal about grace. It's scandalous if it's anything. And when Jesus submits to injustice, which he did, when Jesus submits to injustice, he did so mindful and conscious of God's plan. He was mindful of God. This is going to be important for us. What I mean is, is he didn't do it with a blank mind. He didn't have a wandering mind a month away from the cross, a week out from the cross, the day of the cross. He wasn't trying to figure out and discern what God was really up to in that moment. He He wasn't struggling with that. He was mindful. He was suffering. There was injustice, and he was mindful of God throughout the whole 
time. It was thoughtful. He could see God's promise in the distance and it satisfied him. That's why the author of Hebrews says that it is for the joy that was set in place before him that he endured these kinds of sufferings, the sorrow of the cross. He knew that God's justice would be satisfied in his submission to injustice. You see, this is how God views justice. God demands full justice, not a part of it, not 99% justice, but full justice for all the crimes committed by his broken creation. He demands it. And before it sounds like he's a megalomaniac, we demand the same thing, which is why we all go bananas when somebody commits a crime and they just get let off with no punishment. Doesn't that irk you? It irks everybody. You don't even have to love Jesus for that to bother you. You know why? Because a crime was committed and there was no punishment given. If a crime is committed and there's no punishment given, then there's no justice. You can't have justice without a punishment for a crime. You see, the gospel's not just a story of grace, but it's also a story of justice. God would have justice. He will have justice for all the sins committed against him. And punishment would fall and be executed on Christ so that his brothers and sisters in the church would not find it ourselves. That's what, that's what we call mercy, where you don't get what you should get. Grace is where you get something you shouldn't. Mercy is where you don't get what you should. You see, the father was fully satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus. And so he wouldn't demand retribution on you and on me because Christ answered that demand. He was mindful of this. This is how we approach the cross. This is how he walked towards it. He wasn't drugged to the cross with no clue, like he wasn't memoed into it. I say that because I read accounts or I'll see it on screen, movie, TV show, and it's always got this weird version of Jesus where he wasn't mindful of God in his suffering. He was just suffering. He was just suffering. It's goofy. It's goofy. And this leads to the second thing that we do whenever injustice finds us. We suffer without being mindful of God, without it, which means we brood. We'll suffer, we'll even suffer silently, but we're gonna be mindful of our glory. We wait, we hunt. Go ahead and take your jabs. I might not throw any back, but I'm gonna pray that God gets you back or karma gets you back or whatever, and I'll be there to gloat. I'll be there to feel real good inside whenever you fall like you should have. I mean, have you ever done that? Have you ever had someone be incredibly unjust towards you and you just couldn't do anything about it besides just suffer under the suffering, which is real? And then later on, you find out that something happened to them. Wasn't there just a piece of you that thought, yeah, exactly. It's in all of us. This is what he says, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while unjustly suffering. This this is endurance without, without entrusting the matter to God. This is where we can suffer, suffer for a long time and never give it to God. Never hand it over to him. So we hope that their life collapses for what they did to us. And listen, I'm in this club. I'm not, I'm not going to throw any punches. I'm, I'm not there. I'm not 23 anymore, right? I'm not going to start throwing fists or strategically plotting someone's downfall. But doesn't mean that I'm trusting it to God. It just means I'm more well-behaved. Doesn't mean I'm trusting it to the Lord like I should. It just means I know not to throw a punch. 
You see, on the outside, we could look like Jesus and still have bitterness destroy us on the inside. This is what happens when we suffer and we're not mindful of God. When we relish this thought of someone's destruction so we feel vindicated. It's this bitter toxin that eats at our soul like an acid. You've met people like this. Now listen, some of you are like this. Harbored some bitterness because of something that was done to you, something that was horrible. So you know all too well what it feels like. You know what it feels like to have unjust treatment done. You probably know better than most, right? But you won't entrust it to God, so you just hold it. And it sits on your soul, and you won't let it go. Listen, when we're mindful of God, and we suffer like Christ did in this moment, and we're mindful of him, we can keep his promises in mind. So when I'm suffering because of some sort of unjust treatment from someone that I feel trapped to and I I can't do anything, I remind myself that God is good and that he is just and that he will balance all accounts. He will settle all accounts because he's perfect justice. I remind myself that he is in total control of history. He's a sovereign God and he wants good for me. I remind myself that he hates my suffering more than I hate my suffering. You know how I know that? Because he actually did something about it. He gave us his son. He actually has a solution for my suffering. I remind myself that vengeance doesn't belong to me. Hey, newsflash, I'm not very good at using vengeance. I don't know how to use that. It doesn't belong to me. I remind myself that my oppressors, they need Jesus, and they need the joy of the Holy Spirit every bit as much as I do. And they're made in the image of God every bit as much as I am. But I think the third thing, which is becoming more in focus just because of where we're at as a society, is when injustice comes to us, we're very vocal. We suffer vocally against our oppressors. Oh, we let them know. We might turn the other cheek, but we'll be breathing threats the whole time. We'll be reviling the whole time, right? We weaponize our words as much as we possibly can because we feel like we can't return fire, so we're just going to say the meanest thing that we possibly can. This is what Peter says. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Deceit is just a criticism with deep insults attached to it. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Threatening is just to make somebody else feel vulnerable. So if we're deceiving, if we have deceit in our mouth, we're telling lies about somebody. We're trying to deconstruct them with lies. When we revile, we're being highly critical Highly accusatory. And when we threaten, we're trying to undo them by putting them on their heels. Oh, we don't want them to get any sleep that night. That's what threatening does. But man, doesn't this feel therapeutic to do? To let a couple words go? To say a sentence just right so it stings a certain way? Man, I tell you what, social media has been great for this, hasn't it? It does a good job of connecting us and helping us not have to memorize everybody's birthday and stuff like that. It is really good for reviling. Really good for it. When someone is unjust to you and you are suffering, let me just encourage you to look to silence as a key strategy. As you're mindful of God, to look to silence. I've always been mystified at how easy Jesus makes silence look when I know for a fact it wasn't easy at all. It wasn't easy at all. If he was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted, and he took a beating 
and was mocked and ridiculed. You don't think he wanted to let a couple phrases come out of his mouth? You don't think he was tempted for that? If the Bible's true, he was. He was tempted to maybe say a few things that were not parables in that moment, right? Probably had some sharp statements, but he does not do it. In fact, this is what Psalms says, and Psalms, just to remind you, is pretty much Christ's prayer book. So whenever we see Psalms, we see these beautiful songs and pieces of poetry that Christ would, in fact, walk out later on in life. That's why the Psalms is in your Bible. And it says this in Psalm 38, but I am like a deaf man, David says. I do not hear like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I've become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. And that's exactly what Christ did. That's exactly what he did. Isaiah 53, and by the way, whenever you're reading 1 Peter 2 especially, you need to know that it had to be Peter had the book of Isaiah open right next to him because it's almost line for line that we see Isaiah 53 pulled out and repackaged and remixed in 1 Peter 2. But in Isaiah 53, it says about Christ, it says he was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, didn't say a word. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Man, how hard is that? Without the Holy Spirit, we can't pull this off. Being silent as people, taking shots, being silent as people are unjust. Listen, that doesn't mean that justice doesn't matter. Doesn't mean that justice doesn't matter. I know that's what it feels like. It feels like when we are silent and gracious, like we're doing a disservice to justice. Like I can't let them get away with that. Then justice won't be held up. I got to threaten back. I mean, that was mean what they said. I got to be mean back or else justice is dropped. Listen, here's my encouragement. God will correct injustice in every realm from every era in every moment. He will settle all the accounts. He will settle all of them. Anything that was done to you, that victimized you, it will be brought to light It will be corrected. Whoever is being crooked and depraved towards you, they will not get the last say. They won't get the last say. God gets the last word. That means that you and I don't have to fight for it. God will get the last word. So we're free to trust our injustices to God, turn around, walk off, and live our life. We can entrust it and leave it. Submission isn't giving a pass to crooked people. It's showcasing the gospel of grace and mercy and justice. It's lifting it high for everyone to see. And in this, they see a picture of Jesus. And in this, you will find freedom. In this, you will find the content satisfaction that Christ himself felt when he was silent. Because let's face it, vindication, it doesn't belong to us. And like I said, we don't know how to use vengeance. We don't know what to do with it. I can't settle accounts like God can. I can't. This is how John Piper says it it really well. He says, the powerful cry of my heart that I get my rights is handed over to God. If I'm to be vindicated, it will be God who vindicates me. This is one of the most difficult aspects of Christianity, and that's why I feel like Peter's camped out on it for so long. An exile's life is one of letting go and trusting God, letting go of our felt rights and trusting God. Submission, that's an exercise in letting go. It's an exercise in letting go. 
And I know how painful this is going to feel and how hard it is for some of you to feel in here. I know how hard this is. It's, 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 it's like letting go of the last thing that you feel like you have control over. You'd be giving up your right to stick it to them. You'd, you'd be giving up your right to, worst, to, to, to wish the most devastating thing to happen to them. It, it'd be giving up the right to say something mean to them. You're giving up your rights. It feels like you're giving up everything that you have left to give. And you are. <laughs> you are, but you're not giving it to your oppressor. You're giving it to the Lord. You're submitting it to him. And you're saying in that act, vengeance does not belong to me. And that's a reflection of the gospel. One that people can see. People see that and they, have to, they don't have a category for it. They don't have a category for this type of submission. This is what it says in 1 Peter 2.9, which we've looked at in another sermon before this one. Peter says, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. How do we proclaim his excellencies with our mouth if we don't proclaim them with how we forgive, how we submit, how we show grace, and how we endure unjust suffering? That's what proclaims it. That's what makes it leap off the page is that. Because when the world watches you and trusts your suffering to God, instead of exacting revenge, it looks at a living demonstration of Jesus and not the Jesus they grew up hearing about. This is a Jesus that carried no deceit or threatening words, it says. He returned no verbal jabs, no physical jabs. Like a sheep on its way to be sheared, he was silent. He surrendered his claim to be vindicated in the here and now. He gave up his quest to get even, to say what his flesh would want to say. He didn't settle accounts here on earth. Jesus wasn't forced to be silent. He was free to be silent because he trusted his father with injustice. And just like that, you're not forced to suffer like that either. You're free to. You're free. Because vengeance is not yours, and justice will be had, as all accounts one day will be balanced and settled by the eternal and perfect judge and justice keeper. That we know. So when we have a passage like this that speaks to our hearts, it's asking for you and me to repent, to turn away from some pretty key things. One of them is just demanding retribution instead of entrusting our vengeance to God. That's a key point of repentance for us. And I, and I know, because in my heart, whenever I feel injustice, I feel like God's not looking. Like he's, a, he's like a lousy Supreme Court justice that's busy with other things, and he's not paying attention to this. And I just don't believe that he's good. I don't believe that he's in control. And I have to turn from that. So let me ask you, just point blank, who are you laying a trap for? Who are you strategically plotting against? Or who are you waiting to see come apart? Who are you hoping to see come undone? Who are you destroying with your words? Whether anyone can hear you or, hear me now, whether you're all alone. Whether you're all alone, the grumbling of your soul, the brooding, who are you ruining with your words? Can you Join me in repenting for not trusting God. 
his plan for justice. We're free to take hits from crooked people the same way Jesus did. And when we do, we find ourselves in this treasured thin place where we experience an intimacy with God because we're travailing and suffering in the same way he did. That's hallowed ground. We're free to forgive, for they know not what they do. But I can promise you this, it won't remove the pain. It doesn't make suffering not hurt anymore, but it removes that bitterness that kills us from the inside out. It will do that. It doesn't even mean your suffering's gonna go away. It just means that we can invite the power of God into the moment as we are mindful of him, his promises, where he's carrying us. Listen, I'm sorry for the injustice that has hurt you and haunts you. I'm sorry for the pain. It's lousy. It's a real suffering. It's not petty. I'm hopeful for you, though, that as an exile that's shaped after our king and our general in Christ, that you would suffer well, that you'd be mindful of God, that you'd be gracious, that you'd be merciful, that you'd be thoughtful and conscious with what he has done and where he is drawing us. Where we go from God, you make a lousy judge to God, you know how to administrate justice perfectly. You know how to handle vengeance. I'm trusting it to you. Listen, if you're listening today and you're not used to repenting because you'd say that you are far from Christ, or maybe you're watching and you're far from Christ, I think what we can all agree on, whether you love Jesus or not, is the unjust suffering, it's part of this world. (laughs) You're not getting through this life without taking some hits, without injustice coming to your doorstep. We can agree on that. But one thing that maybe you would have to say is that suffering has been tough for you because you've tried really hard to make it not happen. You've tried to create a reality of making sure that you never suffer from injustice. What you've done is tried to make heaven come down to earth for you. Tried to build a little bit of a heaven where there is no suffering and there is no injustice. Did you know that you were created for that? You were created to crave a place of no suffering. You were created to crave a place of no injustice. This means that the gospel is perfect for you. And you are perfect for the gospel at the very same time. But the only freedom you will ever find is in this lamb, this Christ, this perfect sacrifice who is silent all the way to the last second and is suffering for you. And by turning from your life of trying to be a God to trusting and submitting to a very good God, you will, as Peter says, be transported from this place of darkness and bitterness and acidic living all the way to marvelous light. Just turn to the the suffering servant, the one who came to serve you. And listen, there will be a day where a kingdom comes and justice will reign and there will be no suffering. This is something we all have to look forward to. No crooked power balance. The only service that we will have will be glad and willing. We will be God's slaves and we will enjoy every second of it. There will be no place we would rather be. All debts will be paid. Vengeance will be finished. Accounts will be settled. That is what is waiting. For now, we image it by God's church full of his spirit. Amen. Go ahead and stand with me. Let's pray. Let's pray and then... We'll go through communion. Did somebody bring in the communion elements? Would somebody bring in the communion? I didn't get one myself either. I'm going to need one as well.
And listen, if you're a part of Legacy Church or you love Jesus and you're a part of his church, we, we would invite you into taking communion with us. Listen, if you're just here chilling out, you're not even sure if you're a Christian or maybe you know that you're not, don't worry about this part. This is something that we do like a family meal that we take together as Christians where we remember what God has done for us in the work of Christ and we look forward to what God is preparing for us where our family gets together with Christ at the head of the table and we eat a banquet in a place of no suffering one day in the future. All of that is memorialized in this one moment. So while they're passing this out, communion is an act of looking back at what God has done, looking now at how we could have intimacy with him, looking forward for his promises and being mindful of his plan of where he's bringing us. It does all of those things. Hey, will you pitch one of those things to me? Don't, don't really throw it because I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll do, I'll do that, dude. <laughs> I'm not interested in that. Thank you. <laughs> so pull off the thin, it has two lids. You probably figured it out. Y'all are way ahead of me. The top one is the wafer, the bottom one is the juice. But let me just pray and end this part of the service for us as we believe God together. So Father, we thank you for how you broke yourself you weren't a literal lamb going to the cross, and we all know that, Lord, but you were a perfect sacrifice. You'd be the last sacrifice, one, a lamb that wasn't just without blemish on the outside, but without blemish on the inside. And the very last sacrifice that would ever be needed. In fact, we don't have to sacrifice our works today. We don't have to sacrifice our behavior today. We don't have to sacrifice anything today because you have finished it all in that moment. So when we take this bread, we are thanking you for what you broke so that we can celebrate true life today. So we take this in remembrance of you. And Lord, we thank you for the blood that you spilled on that day. You weren't mindlessly having your life emptied from you. You saw it coming from a distance and you knew that the blood that would be let out of you would cover our sins, that justice would be demanded. And you were satisfied, Lord, with the plan of the Father to have that beautiful act on the cross finish the demand of justice. Justice is met over your church's sins because of the blood of Christ, and we thank you for that. And as we look forward, we look forward to a different banqueting table in this place of no suffering, no power imbalances, no injustice, no more brooding, no more dreaming about retribution and vengeance, no more. It's all gone because we are so satisfied and content at the glory that radiates from you in this place of forevermore. So we love you and it's in your name we take this. Amen. Father, we just pray for those who are listening and they have a scattered heart and they're trying to figure out where their place is with you because they just simply don't know. They're not sure. They're not sure how they're supposed to see you. They're not even sure if they're a Christian or maybe they're sure that they're not. Lord, my prayer is, is that you would change their heart, that you would pursue them and then show them how much you love them and how much you adore them taking their heart of stone that can't feel anything and changing it to a heart of flesh. In fact, I pray that that's happening even right now. 
that they look and they see that there's blood on their hands, but they also see at the same time what you went through to clean it. Lord, what you went through to create a family, a community, a cause. Lord, you are so good to us. You were good to us that you thought not only to fix our sins, not only our bad behavior, but you even thought how to bring us freedom in our hearts when our hearts are wounded from injustice. And nobody understands injustice as much as you do. So we thank you for healing our hearts. I pray that you would fix where we're broken today. And I pray that today, in all of our lives, that there would be pieces of vengeance, or all of it, that we just lay at your feet and we say, I trust this to you. I don't know how to use vengeance. I've been pretty bad with it up to this point. So I just trust it to you, and I'm walking away. Lord, that you would give us freedom in that moment. Lord, you are so good, and we are so thankful. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.